Hello, and welcome to the Bedrosian Center's Book Club Podcast, an audio book club where we read and discuss a book every month, sometimes two. We read new and classic works, fiction and non, through a lens of governance to really get at what it means to participate in our communities today. I am Aubrey Hicks, Executive Director of the Bedrosian Center, and today we're going to be discussing Anne Applebaum's Twilight of Democracy, the Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. It's a part memoir, part punditry. <laughs> With me to talk about the book are uh, Lisa Schweitzer. Lisa, can you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Lisa Schweitzer, and I'm a professor in the Department of Urban Planning and Spatial Analysis and in the uh, Department of Gender and Sexuality Studies here at the University of Southern California. Thank you. Uh, Jen Bravo, can you tell our listeners who you are? Hi, everybody. I'm Jen Bravo. I'm an alum of the USC Price School, and I currently work here in Los Angeles doing social and technological innovation and trying to help build a more resilient Los Angeles County. Excellent. Uh, Olivia Olson. Hi, everyone. I'm Olivia Olson. I'm an undergraduate in Dornsife studying philosophy, politics, and law and economics, and I am also a research assistant for the Bedrosian Center. Thank you. And last but not least is Richard Green. I am Richard Green. I am a professor in the Price School in the Marshall School of Business and the Department of Economics here at USC. I also am director of the USC Lusk Center for Real Estate. Uh, thank you. And Richard, you volunteered graciously to do our summary. Can you tell us what, uh, so that we're all on the same page, what is this book about? The book is asking the question, is democracy around the world in an unusually fragile position at the moment? And I think it's worth saying something about Anne Applebaum's background. So I wanted to read this book because I read a book of hers some years ago on the Soviet Gulag that I enjoyed is the wrong word. You don't enjoy books on the Soviet Gulag, but I was impressed with it. She is a long-standing anti-communist, uh, someone who I would call, if you wanted to put a label on her, neoliberal, um, an admirer of Ronald Reagan without being a slavish devotee to him, is how I would describe her. Politic, where politics come from. And I think that's going to be important to note as we discuss the book, what, what her perspective is. And the book is sort of a series of case studies about how we are seeing the rise of strong men. I can't think of a strong woman unless, I guess, in France, maybe, you have, but not really, yeah, <laughs> around the world, um, with particular focus on uh, Hungary, Poland, uh, the UK, and to a lesser extent, the United States. One of the things that was striking about the book is it, it didn't talk very much about Russia, which is a place that sort of had this brief flash of democracy and seemed to lose it pretty quickly. And I was kind of hoping, given her background, she talked at some depth about Russia. She does it in the book. But it's really asking this, I think, internal question about whether democracy survives, given the various enemies that are arrayed against it, and given the appeal that these enemies of democracy have to so many people in so many contexts around the world. Thank you. Anybody have anything to add? I would just add that her particular focus is on uh, elites. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that really struck me about the book is this is a very personal book. It involves stories about her, her friends and family over the last few decades, and what she has seen among these sort of elite intellectuals and business people 
a pull toward authoritarianism. I, I kind of thought at one point it should be subtitled The Twilight of Anne Applebaum's Friendships. <laughs> yeah. It is very much framed. There's a lot of name dropping as well. It's very much framed in terms of we had this amazing New Year's Eve party and here's where all of our party guests are today. Well, I, I, w- I was asked to summarize the books, not start getting into my problems with the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it, it seems pretty clear that there's some bridge burning going on here. Mm-hmm. That's all. I was really struck by that. Do we want to sort of get into the effect and perhaps the power and the risks of talking about these friendships that went south and how she views the trajectory of people's careers as having, you know, sold out their values and joined this authoritarianism craze. I'm happy to talk about whatever you want to talk about. So Yeah, I think there's something interesting here because one of the arguments that she's making is that these strong men don't come to power on their own right? They are supported by an entire sort of cast of characters within the intellectual elite, you know, the newspaper publishers and the writers, and nowadays, frankly, pundits and bloggers and and these sort of folks. And so there was some value, I think, in seeing uh, some of the personal stories. But I was also a little bit surprised because we don't frequently read books where someone's talking about their personal friendships and, and, and sort of outing people in the way that happened throughout the book. Well, the thing that bothered me about the focus on her friends and the elite is it got me to thinking about the fact that, yeah, of course I love democracy. And of course I love markets because things have, it's worked out really well for me in my life to live in a democratic society with markets. And I look at this list of people and for most of them, democracy has worked out pretty well, right? They got to, um, by whatever means, to the point where they could have cool parties in Poland on New Year's Eve and set off fireworks. And, you know, I look at my life and I, I haven't done that, but I've gotten to do a lot of fun things in my life because I've lived in a democratic society. And to me, the, the heroes of democracy are like the black folks in Georgia who went and voted last November. And I started thinking about the fact that here are people who have not benefited from democracy remotely as much as I have, uh, in fact, have been denied some, but I would say not all of its blessings, and yet they really want to save it. So if you're thinking about how you avoid a twilight of democracy, which is the title of the book, what is it about it, democracy that's so appealing to people who have not actually been the best beneficiaries of it? I don't mean best like as human, they haven't gotten the most benefit out of it relative to people like us. And there's really nothing in the book about. In a way, what you're saying is that some of these elites that were at her party in 1999 have been some of those folks who want to deny democracy to the folks that you're talking about. So, uh, Richard, I think that's a good segue because one of the questions I have is how does she define democracy? Ooh, I wanted to I wanted to talk about this. I'm really excited about this. <laughs> okay, Jen. How did she define democracy? <laughs> well, for Anne Applebaum, democracy and free market capitalism, and I'm using free market in, in air quotes here, are essentially one and the same. She defines democracy as a competitive process by which we allocate power. And at no point does she talk about democracy as being the sort of collective will or power of the people. Like that's not even part of, of, of her worldview, mm. that democracy is the realization of the power of, 
of a majority. And I found it interesting how interchangeably she uses the word democracy with what is essentially, you know, market capitalism. And that she sees democracy in this way that, and this is actually another, uh, an issue that I have is that she doesn't, she doesn't accept any of the legitimate critiques of our current democratic system. Like she talks about it as if it is a truly fair competitive process, as if it is truly a meritocracy. And I think we all know that that's not the case in practice, that those may be the ideals, but that's not the reality on the ground. And so that was really fascinating to me. And once I had that, like, oh, I see how she, what she thinks democracy is, the book actually made a lot more sense to me from her perspective, but I disagreed with it more, if that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, I uh, agree. Um, I also thought it was interesting that one of the critiques of the folks who have been drawn further to the right and authoritarianism um, is that um, they, you know, her, uh, her statement about them is that they were disappointed in meritocracy because they didn't think they got what they were entitled to, which is sort of interesting in the terms of, you know, political rhetoric, uh, in the States, at least, you know, entitlements and, and feeling entitled to something are, are usually what we, we say of people who are in welfare. Oh, they feel like they're entitled to not work or I, not me. I don't say that. And I found that a little bit of a, a lot of a blind spot. I feel like she has some, some really big blind spots. Yeah, well, you get the sense that she never talks to people who, don't have advanced degrees from fancy universities. Mm-hmm. Or, well, that's unfair. Is she talks to like the? Oh, no, she actually didn't talk to the other brother who the, the mm-hmm. two brothers mm-hmm. who were part of solidarity, and then they broke apart his brothers, and one became sort of a flunky of the government, and is now the most powerful media, sort of the Roger Ailes of Poland. Okay. She, I, if I recall correctly, she actually didn't talk to him because he wouldn't return her phone. Right. He was too important to talk to her. That was, that was a line in the book. And there, he had no particular credentials, I suppose. But in, he also, at the end of the day, didn't talk to her. But, but again, it was like she didn't ask anyone who was a normal participant in democracy, like voters, about any of this stuff. And that, to me, was a very profound shortcoming in the book. I mean, even, you know, as Thomas Friedman is annoying as all get out, but he does talk about talking to his cab driver or the, you know, woman who serves him coffee at Perkins every now and then. At least he's trying a patina of talking to uh, more typical people, non-elite people, than ever comes across in this book. And, and the irony of it is extraordinary because it's supposed to be a book about democracy. Well, but I'm, I think we need to, there's a number of problems here. Mm-hmm. that I think are getting all mixed up in, in in our discussion here. And one, I think Jen really described nicely in that her, um, Applebaum's definition of democracy is a very specific one that in, re- in many respects is almost apolitical in a way, mm-hmm. right? That many of us would treat as being uh, outside of really understanding the functioning of political institutions other than markets, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so there's that. But there's also, you know, I would say that in general, um, there's a great deal of value in doing these kind of elite focused interviews. One is that it's, they're actually very hard to do. 
just having Joe Blow Scholar knock on the door of somebody like Boris Johnson, you're very likely not to get those interviews. And so her her positionality as a Yale grad and being married to whoever this, you know, very important person is. Yes, this very important person who serves in, in both Polish and in EU politics, right? Th- this gives her a unique positionality to be able to have access to the sort of people that you'd want to interview for an elite perspective because she's right, you know? Donald Trump and and the other sort of strong men authoritarians that have risen to power in some of the Western illiberal democracies um, were have a cadre of elite supporters, right? And it's important to understand them because how elites behave in politics is actually really important to outcomes, mm-hmm. right? So, so there's that. But there's also just the fact, and we kind of hinted at this, but it takes a lot of self-discipline to write about one's own social circle Mm -hmm. in a way that's systematic Mm -hmm. and critical, not from a bad you perspective, but from a what does this really mean perspective, right? Without falling into name dropping, sucking up, and score settling, all of which she indulges in. Mm -hmm. And so that's tough. And I, it's something where I think sort of an editor could have done her some favors in saying, what do we do? But at the same time, right, if you're trying to sell books, the name dropping score settling, right, and sucking up has the tendency to, to, to drive that stuff. Um, those kinds of stories are very um, entertaining to read. Mm-hmm. And, and the other sort of major problem that she's got is what we see emerging from sort of our contemporary authoritarians isn't particularly ideological. Yeah. So describing a consistent theme across them besides a feeling of persecution, mm-hmm. a feeling that people who don't deserve to have a voice have too much voice, right? A, a sort of general and opaque feeling that the whole world is falling apart, mm-hmm. right? for reasons with a capital R, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's not something that's easy to describe in a consistent way because it's not consistent across the people who behave in this way. And as a result, I think this is actually a very difficult book to write across all those dimensions. And she succeeds in some of those dimensions better than others. So Lisa, I wanted to get back to your first point about access to these elites and the, the value of those interviews. I think that's a point that I hadn't really entertained, but do you feel like she has valuable insights coming from those interviews? I felt like even though we kind of have this framework where she starts at the party with these elite friends, most of the insights that she has as takeaways from these leaders, she mentions lunch with Boris Johnson, but then she is instead citing stuff that was from interviews or more more public records. So did we really get the value of her access to those elites? I think that's actually right, Olivia. I think that's, it's kind of one of the problems is that she does have access to them that they don't to the degree that she does really systematically uh, try to present information from them, she doesn't, right? Uh, it doesn't really sound like she knows what she's doing with them. Or And these are, you know, smart and crafty people who are very good at handling media, right? So they're not going to say what they don't want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I think in particular, you isolated one of the chapters where this comes through pretty badly is that we we name drop Boris. I had drinks with Boris. Right. <laughs> right. And then, you know, she goes on to trade on the, you know, typical conservative tropes about Boris Johnson, which is, oh, he's such a naughty but entertaining boy, isn't he? Um, 
without you know, kind of really grabbing into anything or, or not grabbing into, but really looking into um, the fundamental motivations. And it leaves the, per- at least me, it leaves me with the impression that really her conclusions about Laura Ingraham uh, apply pretty much across the board mm-hmm. and that these are all political opportunists who see their main chance and are willing to, um, Traduce many uh, traditional norms and hurt a lot of people if it keeps them in the spotlight, if it keeps them in power, and if it keeps lining their pockets and feathering their nests. And even though she never says anything that boldly, that's my summary. She doesn't say it. Right. Yeah, there's a couple of, of interesting things here that you just hit on, Lisa. So one of them is this idea, and there's, I think it's actually a quote that I took a note of, what is on offer is not an ideology, but an identity. Mm-hmm. And we get into this concept of like identity. So she talks about Karen Stenner, the researcher who does uh, research into authoritarian predispositions, right? So, so like a bit different from the Hannah Arendt perspective, which is that you have authoritarian personalities like a Trump or a Boris Johnson. This is research that's been conducted around like what are people's sort of innate, the argument goes, uh, predispositions toward wanting sameness and order and being really uncomfortable with complexity and diversity and sort of chaos in a way, right? And I actually went and did some reading on Karen Stenner after I read this book, because I thought that that was actually some of the more interesting stuff Mm -hmm. in this book Mm -hmm. was this, you know, statement that like a third of people, generally speaking, have these sort of authoritarian predispositions. And I went and did some research on Karen Stenner. There's actually a really good recent article that she co-wrote in Foreign Policy magazine called How to Live with Authoritarians. And that article, I actually think, did, uh, did a better job of laying out what are the actual issues that are at play here with the way that people are responding to a very rapidly changing world. And and, you know, Anne Applebaum touches on some of the reasons it's rapidly changing. I mean, media and the internet and blogging and Facebook and like all these things are like one of the, I think, primary drivers of this rapid change. But this idea that what we've really got is a bunch of people who never really were very pro-democracy at their core, they sort of maybe always had a predisposition toward authoritarianism, but it hadn't really been triggered yet. There's something in the Karen Stenner article about how for many people it's latent, and then it gets triggered by something. And what is triggering this, the argument goes, which I found to be a compelling argument, is really, really rapid change in society where people feel as though something that they deserve, that they have previously been privileged to have, is now being taken away from them. Their power, their status, and and when we're talking about identity politics, this is primarily men, it's primarily white men, it's primarily white Christians, right, in the U.S. who feel extremely threatened by demographic shifts, economic shifts, other people asserting their own rights to equality within our society. And so thinking of it as an identity that maybe people sort of always had under the surface. And so when she's talking about these, you know, people being political operatives and taking advantage, to me, it almost was more of like the the latent, you know, predisposition was just sort of coming out. I, I guess two points. One on the, the world has changed because of Twitter. I mean, clearly that's true. But I also think about the fact that in the 19th century, newspapers were very partisan. 
and you read your partisan newspaper. Uh, the New York Times arguably changed how journalism was done. This idea that you had this sort of gray lady attempt at objectivity without fear or favor was actually a new phenomenon. And we went hundreds of years with partisan presses. And people would read newspapers. I mean, the literacy rate was lower, but you stop, but not that many people actually look at political arguments on Twitter. Or I found it very interesting. You know, Tucker Carlson gets 3 million viewers a night. That's a lot. It's more than anyone else. But in a country of 320 million, it's not like everybody's thinking about Tucker Carlson every day. So this idea that we are now driven to these partisan media and live in these echo chambers that we didn't live in before, I'm, I, I'd be curious as to how true that actually is. It I, seems I, like we- I totally take your point. I, to- I, I agree with you. However, I would say that there is something different about this time, which is the power of these social media platform algorithms and the way in which they actually shape to a great degree what we are seeing without us knowing that they are shaping what we are seeing. And it's, it's, it's much more rapid fire. We don't get one new newspaper every morning and then you're sort of reading the paper that you're aligned with, right? The left-wing paper, the right-wing paper. This is sort of like constant chaos that is being shaped in a way and that we don't know it's being shaped for us. And so I actually think that that is the primary difference now. No, I, I think that's a fair point. I just, and by the way, I do worry about democracy being under threat. It just seems to me that, that a lot of these things have been around with us in different forms for a very long time. And I wish you'd spent a little time talking about that. And then the other thing, there's something I don't know what to do with is a lot of the places that have become more antagonistic to democracy, and you look at like Pew polls about the U.S., the love of democracy has absolutely faded over the last 30 years in this country. There are places where you can see why they say to themselves, democracy has failed us. Now, they attribute it to the wrong cause. You know, we as white men don't get these jobs anymore because of Mexican immigrants or something like that. But There is no denying that many cities in the U.S. are worse off now than they were 40 years ago. Income inequality has manifested itself in a number of ways. One is one of the biggest drivers of income inequality is the driving uh, is income inequality across cities. That means there's income inequality within cities, but it's also San Francisco and Boston and Washington and Seattle and Austin have gotten so much more prosperous, whereas a Cleveland, a St. Louis, and Milwaukee have become so much less prosperous that just if you happen to live in one city relative to another, you're going to experience a very different kind of economy. That wasn't so true through about the 1970s when we went through a period of convergence in American cities that were becoming more alike economically, and they've become more disparate in that period of time. And so you understand why some people look around and say, this is not working. In the UK, you have a similar thing where you have London is the richest city in Europe, richest big city in Europe, but then Sheffield and Birmingham and Liverpool and Manchester and so on have not done well. They have seen a shedding of jobs. They have seen income stagnate. They have seen their communities lose their bright young people who look for opportunities somewhere else. 
And, and so when thinking about threats to democracy, I would have liked something about the destabilizing influence of increasing inequality. And I guess gave one particular dimension, which is across space. There are another, a number of other dimensions we could also talk about, but, but that's the most obvious one. A person sitting in St. Louis and looking around saying, geez, our city isn't what it was 50 years ago economically is absolutely correct about that statement. So, you know, I think that gets at one of the biggest flaws, which I, I don't think she has the self-awareness to really look at Reagan and Thatcher and the conservative party for the last 40 years, which I think gets at, you know, sort of what John was talking about, this sort of latent authoritarianism and, you know, the austerity and the, the, the policies of Thatcher and Reagan and how much those sorts of things have contributed to the income inequality and all of those things, the, the disparaging of the city, um, you know, the war on drugs. I mean, I'm talking about um, the U.S. where um, she talks less about the U.S. But to me, that was sort of one of the biggest downfalls of the book is that she still seems to have those rose-colored glasses about Thatcher and Reagan. Yeah, I mean, this is also very much not a policy book, right? She right. actually isn't looking at policy mm -mm. really at all. Mm -mm. She treats democratic institutions, and by those I mean like the courts, essentially, as the institutions that are under threat, mm -hmm. um, which is valuable. But it, in no way does she actually look at, at how policies may mm -hmm. be contributing to the situation that we're currently in. Yeah, I, I agree with Jen. And I think that that point kind of brings me to my biggest issue with the book, the so what. I, I wasn't really sure what I was supposed to take away, how we can avoid this twilight of democracy and, and what we should do about it and what we should be aware of going forward. So do we think that perhaps had it been a policy book, had it been less personal, more geared towards the actual impact of, of these choices, what, what could you have seen as being a, a way to have this have some sort of a takeaway? It's a really good question. It's a really good question. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because throughout the book, and especially when she's talking to the Greek historian, whose name I can't recall, who's like, oh, well, we've seen the cycles of this go on all the way back to the original Athenian Republic, right? Like these things are cyclical. And it's interesting because from an American perspective, and she does mention this, we think of progress as being linear, as being an upward trajectory. The Civil War is a blip. We like to sanitize our history and not think about labor movements. And, and the civil rights movement is also very sanitized when we think about it, right? And so we think our, our history is an upward linear trajectory toward better and better things. And we don't see it in that cyclical way. We've actually not been around long enough, maybe, to see it in a cyclical fashion. So that's one thing that I actually took away from, from the book is that in a way she's arguing, in, and, and, and I think she even says it at one point, she's like, maybe it's inevitable, <laughs> which I didn't feel like was a great takeaway, to be, to be fair. You know, it, it, you're reminding me, of, I had a colleague at the University of Wisconsin who was a scholar on the Balkans. And he said, you know, the reason that democracy is stable in the U.S. is we're so lousy at history. And so we don't replay our grievances about what happened 100 years ago every day. 
Whereas in the Balkans, it's like his line was, if my great, 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 great grandfather had his goat stolen from your great, 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 great grandfather, both families still knew all about it and were still upset about it. Uh, and, and so there was a line in there that made me think, yeah, we, we kind of suck at history in this country. And that might actually be a pacifying influence on or a stabilizing influence on democracy. I mean, and, and in some ways, it's the opposite. I mean, you know, in so many ways, we're replaying the Civil War now. And, yes. you know, the um, the Hatful, the McCoys, you know. I have so many things I want yeah. to respond to because <laughs> everybody's making such excellent points. Um, but just it, just going way back, pulling us way back to Richard's point about, well, we've always had partisan newspapers. Um, you know, there's a real difference between partisanship and polarization, right? And that in and of itself, partisanship is not itself uh, antithetical to democracy and democratization. And I do think it's absolutely the case that we've always had partisanship. I mean, you have to have it in politics, right? People have to expound their interests, right? They have to expound their values in order for a political community to function. What I think is really quite different, and I think this is a bit of a missed opportunity in her book, in fairness, again, there are a lot of us struggling with trying to understand how disinformation is affecting what we're trying to do in, in deliberative democracy. Uh, and I, I, I literally just wrote two book chapters about this um, for, for various different edited volumes. But, you know, when Oswald Mosley uh, was trying to raise a fascist um, movement in the UK in the early 20th century, he had to rely on volunteers to hand out leaflets. And he also had to beg for mass media opportunities from a small number of elite selected gatekeepers, right? Now, if Alex Jones or Steve Bannon um, wants to uh, get information out to a lot of people, they've got really low capital requirements to do it. They've got really low distributional costs, right? And they've got, you know, you're, and do, do you know print is is in no way dead right there are still a lot i mean there's almost a hundred ethnic newspapers alone in new york right with a readership of an astounding number um those haven't necessarily gone away but what we have now are our niche markets online for straight up misinformation and disinformation that really is about reinforcing the identity and not the ideology, right? Because partisanship really is about this question of like what you believe, whether there's a consistent worldview about how the world works and how it should work, right? Those normative questions. This is much more nihilistic and it's, it's much more, it's very rapid in the way that it adapts. And it, it really, it really strikes me too that like this, when you, when you've built a world now that's based on a series of lies, and you have people who've built into that world of lies. There's a bunch of interesting psychology around people who are members of cults and how the cult actually breaks down your ability to determine what's real and what's not real. We now have people who are built into an absolutely false narrative about about facts. And I don't actually know how, how we come back from something like that. It's extremely hard to, when people have now been sort of taught to distrust every single source of information, how do we even have a shared understanding of the world upon which to argue about our different 
ideologies or different philosophies if we don't even right. have the same foundational understanding anymore. Well, and and yeah. where ultimately your willingness to espouse or lend credence to that false narrative in of itself is the purity test or loyalty test by which you're allowed to be in the group or out of the group. Your identity hinges on it. So Comet, you know, okay, so Comet Ping Pong is the pizza parlor at the heart of the, at the pizza, at the heart of the Pizzagate conspiracy, right? Now, Comet Ping Pong is a ridiculous name <laughs> with a ridiculous premise, right? Um, the building itself doesn't even have a basement, which, which one might run a pedophilia, right? The building physically doesn't have it. But yet that, Pizzagate is remarkably resilient, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Many times debunked. And what's perverse about all of this is that all of us in, in media, media studies, we all benefit from this cycle. It's mm -hmm. very perverse, right? So, at, you know, a few days before the 2016 election, Alex Jones is on YouTube saying, okay, I just have to tell people this. This is in the FBI files that nobody knows yet. Hillary Clinton has literally murdered children mm -hmm. and there's 500,000 views within the next few days. Alex Jones pockets that cash. YouTube pockets that cash, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of us in media and in the world have a lot of content that has just been created for us in debunking this nonsense, right? Which that watchdog function is really traditionally a politically important function of media, but it keeps us from engaging with um, other types of topics that are much, you know, it, we can't have a discussion, for example, about the, the things that are long-term and difficult, like climate change, if we have to spend all of our time trying to convince people that a building that doesn't have a basement, right, doesn't have a pedophilia ring in it. And, and this is, and I, I, I don't fault her for not being able to do this, because I think that writing such a book is really beyond anyone at this point. Yeah. There's the fact that there are her friends in the elite that are participating in this. There's simply no way that a lot of the people who expounded Pizzagate actually believed it. Right. And yet there was a man who drove all the way from North Carolina with his guns in the car, right. To charge into comment ping pong in a good hearted, if really misguided notion that he was going to save those kids, right? That there are these multiple layers of how disinformation is working, you know, from the people like Ted Cruz, who have had access to unbelievable elite educational opportunities, and who still promulgate these, these, um, these falsehoods, because it's politically expedient and useful for them. And I just want to say one last thing about this, this, I mean, how quickly the tide turns. You go for somebody like Mike Pence, who spent four years being as good a foot soldier for, for Ted, for, for Donald Trump as a person could be. Who at the very last minute, when asked to do something that was likely to end him up in federal prison, refuses to do that one thing. And in that moment becomes somebody who's an enemy of the very people mm -hmm. who the day before had treated him like one of their movement's heroes. Mm -hmm. That's how much more this is an identity and about in loyalty. loyalty. Yeah.
than it is about any sort of consistent ideology. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that really struck me too. One of the things I did think was interesting about the book, and this is just my lack of education about what's going on in Poland and Hungary right now, was that <laughs> each of the right-wing movements, the authoritarian movements, has at its core what Anne Applebaum calls a medium-sized lie, right? Which is like a conspiracy, mm-hmm. the, Sm- the Smolensk conspiracy, or it's the George Soros is taking over, wants to destroy Hungary uh, conspiracy theory. And that it's the willingness to buy into that theory and then share and replicate and constantly like recreate and reinforce that conspiracy theory, which is what gives you power and access within this movement. Uh, And and that's gotta be a conscious decision for many people. Do I, knowing something's untrue, choose to buy into this and continue to share it because it will help me either maintain my power or advance in a system in which I previously couldn't advance. What I found extraordinary, and I, I actually liked this factoid in the book, was how in Hungary they use the threat of Syrian migration as the oh, bogeyman. Yeah. And there are, is no Syrian migration, in, I mean, you know, close enough to no Syrian migration into Hungary, and yet they use it mm-hmm. as a cudgel to keep power. Mm-hmm. The other thing she mentioned in passing though that I would have liked to have known more about is the other way that the Hungarians stay in power is by cheating. I mean, she just flat out says it, but she doesn't really talk very much unless I met it, unless I missed it about how the cheating happened. And I would have liked to have known more about how you actually get away with it. It's, I, and, and one thing I'm curious about, so Putin, when he wins, he wins by these large margins, but everybody also thinks he's cheating. If he weren't cheating, would he win? I don't know. How does this cheating actually happen? What is the mechanism for it? And why do people stand by and let it happen? It's an interesting question. It makes me think a lot about people who say, well, Hitler was only elected with 36% of the vote of the German people or whatever. And at the end of the day, um, <laughs> at the end of the day, it's kind of like, well, that uh, does it does it matter, right? Because they they've got folks who are loyal to them in all of these positions. Um, we can see some of the mechanics here in the U.S. Um, I would have liked more information about what was happening uh, in in both Germany or sorry in in both Poland and Hungary. But but the, but there's an interesting dichotomy here that I think, which is that the the way Anne writes about Anne Applebaum writes about it is as as if cheating doesn't happen in democracies, it only happens in these right-wing authoritarian systems. And I, I don't think that, and, and, and that like corruption only occurs in these authoritarian systems. Um, and, and it was actually a lack of willingness to explore how some of these are problems within democracies that I actually found, like she lost some credibility with me. There was a bit of like refusal to see some of the issues within democracies and some false equivalencies between some of the issues that are both on the left and the right that, that just caused me to, to like lose credibility with the entire analysis, you know? Yeah, the, the false equivalency part really bothered me. Yeah. Uh, but but it is interesting on, on the merging of clean government and democracy. It's, it's one of the things I find fascinating is if you look at India, which until recently was a very robust democracy. I worry, actually, India's country, I worry a lot about now with the current government in power. Um, But it's corrupt. 
And this is not a Western guy, you know, wagging his finger at somebody else. It's, when you talk to any, you look at Transparency International's measures of these things, it's corrupt. You talk to Indians, it's corrupt. You talk to your cab driver in India, and he will tell you about the cop who pulls him over for quote unquote speeding. And, you know, you can't speed actually in Mumbai because the traffic is too bad. It, it's not actually physically possible to speed. <laughs> and, but we'll take care of the fine right here and there. There's no reason to have the messiness of writing you up a ticket and you having to send it. In. We'll, we'll just take care of it right here. I've, I've actually seen it happen well in a cab. Contrast that with Singapore, which is an authoritarian state. And yet Transparency International ranks it as amongst the least corrupt of all countries. And the reason for that government doesn't actually skim, it's actually pretty good about taking taxpayer money and spending it on the things you're supposed to spend taxpayer money on. So I was kind of hoping that there'd be some discussion of that it is, is the reason democracy is in trouble is there's a perception. And this is the case, of course, that the Lee family makes in Singapore that democracy doesn't deliver very well, whereas a benign authoritarian produces better outcomes for people. And there was nothing of that discussion in the book. Now, I, you know, I always try to do the Rawlsian exercise and ask, okay, if I didn't know anything else, would I rather be born in India than Singapore? And I've asked a number, I've spent a fair amount of time in India. I've talked to a number of Indians about it. And it's interesting, it splits about 50-50 between the two. I'm pretty sure I would rather be born in India than Singapore. But at least there, you can sort of talk about, right, it's how Xi Jinping tries to establish his legitimacy. As he says, hey, we're doing a great job as government, and that's all people should really care about. And democracy is going to mess that up. And, and there's really nothing along those lines within this book. And so I think with Jen's point about, you know, the assumption that if you're a democracy, you're not corrupt is, is a problematic assumption is absolutely correct. I didn't take that. And maybe I just wasn't paying attention. I didn't think she assumed that. Um, and maybe it's because I don't think there's any reason to assume that because what we're really talking about are, you're talking about bureaucracies and their governments and their management and administration versus the sources of political authority. So it's entirely possible to have corrupt authoritarians too. Like these are not these are not, you know, salt and pepper shakers, where if you get a salt shaker, you get a pepper shaker. <laughs> it's not joined up. Um, and so I, I I didn't really fault the book for not getting into that. I think that um, she does hint at the thing with democracy, which is that you are not guaranteed, right, outcomes that you like. You know, it's a problem with the, you know, it's a fundamental problem in political theory that we've been arguing about for a very long time, which is why should states be empowered to act, right? And whose preferences should guide that? And again, there's nothing that says, um, you know, from the, the impulse to execute the Argonusai generals onward, right? Democracies do boneheaded things just like authoritarian governments sometimes do boneheaded things for a lot of reasons, right? Sometimes it's because the actual democratic preference isn't particularly good, right? The majority preference in a country where there is a dominant racial majority might actually be quite perverse when it comes to the delivery of individual and civil rights. Um, there's a whole bunch of problems with democracy. I think one of the things that kind of, and maybe it's because of the time that I read this in with all the, there's a lot of weirdness going on in the media, but just how <laughs> poorly educated people are about their expectations 
mm-hmm. about what politics can do, what their responsibilities are with it, and 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 what they are responsible for. And I love that last bit that she ends with, which is, you know, democracy, being a participant in it is time consuming. And politics are often tedious and hurtful. And so, you know, the idea that there is a, a, a you know, about 33% of the people, and I too love Karen Brenner's work. I think she's very interesting. And what I like about her so much is there's nothing essentialist about it, right? That there, that people have these preferences for order and that that meets up with contextual circumstances that prompt them to react in specific ways. I think that's a very powerful way of thinking about it, but that, I don't know. I lost my train of thought there. My train left the station. <laughs> I started thinking about coffee instead. <laughs> this actually has brought me back to, to a thought that I had about a question Olivia raised earlier, which was like, what, so what, like, what's, what's the takeaway? And it's interesting because I had mentioned earlier the article that I read that Karen Stenner re was a co-author on in foreign policy. And that article actually ends with a takeaway that I thought potentially could have been a takeaway from the Ann Applebaum book if it had been structured in this way, which was that it because the, the focus of that article was like how to live with authoritarianism, if a, if a third of us have these predispositions and we're really much more comfortable with order, then living in a chaotic, messy system in which you are not guaranteed good outcomes, you're not guaranteed outcomes that you prefer, what, how can we all live together? And one of the ideas at the end of that article was that you could have a progressive agenda. There's actually advice for President Biden, like at the end of this article. It's like you can have a progressive agenda that you don't compromise on, but the way that we talk about it, the kind of messaging we use can be used to sort of calm and create a sense of oneness and create a sense of stability that can be sort of de-escalating for people who have these authoritarian predispositions and are very, very, you know, made nervous by this sort of like chaotic behavior that they see out in the world. And that to me was something that I then want to go explore. Like that was a takeaway for me where I was like, okay, so there may be a way for us to advance the rights of people who have been disenfranchised. There may be a way for us to decrease inequality. There may be a way for us to have a more equitable society and not trigger people who are really made uncomfortable by that if we can frame this well enough, if we can talk about the benefits to all of us and sort of some stability and unity. And actually made me wonder if that's one of the reasons, maybe not consciously, but one of the reasons why Biden has frustratingly to me been like so harping on like this whole unity thing where I, so much of me is like, I don't want unity with the people who attacked the, the Capitol on January 6th. That's outrageous, you know? Although I, I have to say, so Ted Cruz for once, he, his, I don't know if you just saw his description of Biden, but he was trying to make it an insult and he actually got it exactly right. He's called Biden boring, but radical. And I thought, man, that is exactly what this country needs at the moment. Um, and the bill, the $1.9 trillion bill, the American Rescue Act, is in many ways, for America anyway, pretty damn radical. But, but Jen, you're also bringing to mind a scene from one of, a favorite scene from a favorite movie, which is Milk. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie about Harvey Milk. And he runs for uh, the, I think in San Francisco, they're called the Board of Supervisors twice. And he runs on the issues of social justice and gay rights, and he lo- he gets thumped, okay? Third time he runs, he runs on the issue of dog poop, 
And he says, if I'm elected, I will make sure you don't step on dog poop in the street anymore in San Francisco. And he won on that issue. And then he got a pooper scooper law. I don't know if it was the first in the country, but it was among the first in the country. Pooper scooper laws passed. And it says, if you leave your dog poop on the sidewalk, you pay a $200 fine or something like that. And you know what? Dog poop disappeared from San Francisco's sidewalks because he was so credible on the issue that everybody does care about, right? Nobody wants to step into dog poop. Then he could start talking about the issues that matter deeply to him in a way that resonated with a wider swath of people. Now, we know the tragic outcome of all of that. So that it's not like it's a happy ending. But I thought the political lesson of that, and actually that's a case where the movie was correct in terms of how it characterized what actually happened, that there are things that everybody cares about. It, it's exec- And that's why, you know, I love Barack Obama. I work, the proudest thing I ever done was work in his administration. And not to over, I mean, I was a kind of low level functionary, but I still got to work in the administration. But you know what? He started out by having Larry Summers tell him what to do. And if you want to talk about somebody coming at things from an elite perspective, Larry Summers is like your poster child kind of guy for it. And so it led to an initial stimulus that was just too small. And so we stagnated for longer than we needed to stagnate. Biden has come at this with that, hey, people are really hurting here. I don't care who is hurting. We're going to help. I don't care if they voted for me or not. We're just going to get money out of people so that they don't hurt as much anymore. We're not going to stop the hurting, but we're going to make it. And damn it, we're going to get all these shots into arms. I mean, to make that like your visible priority and then execute on it. I think that is a takeaway. And then when you do that, your ability to do other things politically almost certainly is enhanced. And this is a country where, you know, you get one or two more percentage of the voters on your side, you're basically in very rock solid territory as a leader. So I I think your point, and now the train is leaving the station for me too, but what you said was really resonated with me about takeaway. And the takeaway is democratically elected governments need to do things that people really care about and do them well for them to be not under threat. But that's hard. You know, that also says that democratically governed states are not necessarily doing things well. Um, There are a lot of things that we still do well that are very invisible. Um, It's like when we started the best and worst in governance, it was really easy to get nominations for worse, but much harder for best, even though there are a lot of really good things happening, particularly at local levels. I want to return to to Richard's point, though. I think... As much as there was a flirtation with this whole idea of, oh, all governments are corrupt and incompetent. And so it doesn't matter, right? Like Donald Trump, like, and, and the Trumpists and their whole, you know, government sucks. So we'll just let it all go to hell. I think that flirtation was a wake up call for Americans because even though there is corruptions, um, I would actually encourage many Americans to go live abroad in places where government bureaucracies really do not work where you have to pay many, many bribes and still wait four months for your electricity to be turned on, <laughs> right? Because those places in the world do exist. And the progressive era in the U.S. bureaucracy and its professionalism has its definite downsides, right? You know, oh, the swamp with all the Harvard people in the federal bureaucracy, tisk tisk, it's very elite. At the same time, very, very few of us are used to living with governments that do not work for us at all. And there are portions of the United States populace 
who do live in conditions where governments don't serve them worth a crap. Yeah. And they're not the ones that are whining about democracy. Right. right? No, I mean, Flint still doesn't have clean drinking water, right? That's like right. you can, like which communities in Texas had their power back before other communities, right? So that there is, it's not perfect here. There is no perfect, and no. But we can strive to be better, right? But that's, that's one of the critiques that I have of the book, and it is an intellectual limitation. In Anne Applebaum's mind, progressives have absolutely no good ideas, Right. right. There's absolutely nothing over there in that ideology that's of value mm-hmm. to the political community. And as a result, it's all corrupt. And this is, you know, this is a downward spiral and it's cyclical and it's this and that, which is a very confused message from the book. But the truth is, maybe what we're seeing isn't a backsliding or a, or a movement back on any sort of circle. But in reality, the real pain and struggle that results from a genuine attempt to become a pluralist, a genuinely pluralist, generally multiracial mm-hmm. democracy with political equality actually shared with the struggles that that entails, right? With the, with the challenges to norms and existing practices that all of that entails and with the reactionary, right? With an actual reactionary movement among people who do feel this loss of status in, in the power hierarchies and status hierarchies that they believe they're due. Yeah, and to build that pluralist multiracial society, we actually have to do some work to repair harms that have been done historically. And that is actually really scary for people who feel then as though they are losing out, they are losing status or power, right? The, the idea that we would pay reparations, that we would make investments in communities that have been historically disinvested in, those are scary. And there's something else I want to raise here, which is that there's something really scary coming for all of us. And that's climate change. Yeah. And it's happening. And it's destabilizing. And it is ecologically terrifying. And for people who are activated through fear, (laughs) right, and who are going to act out, this is a real challenge for us in how we address climate change, how we talk about it, how we fund a green transition, a just transition that works for most people. I think that this is probably the biggest challenge that we've ever faced. We're trying to create a multiracial, pluralistic, to the extent possible, you know, equity-based society while we are now faced with this massive existential threat that isn't like a, it's not out in the future. It's not like a, it's not like a meteor that's coming. It's like, this is cyclical. This is every year now we have fires, we have air quality issues, we have water issues, we have heat waves, like there are storms, this stuff happens. And the people who are most harmed, right? Those are actually not the people who are, who are, who are leading authoritarian rebellions, fascinatingly, right? Those are the people who are striving to get out to vote, you know, in the middle of of every effort being made to suppress their vote. So I think that this is like probably one of our biggest challenges is how do we address something that is terrifying, that is an existential threat to us, not activating or triggering these people who are terrified of change, but change is necessary. It's a, it's a, it's going to be a requirement for our survival. I agree with what you're saying wholeheartedly. And I also think one of the other flaws in this book is her, you know, she says, you know, fights over religion are not important anymore. And then she goes on to sort of indicate where all the the problems with religion are. And, you know, in particular, I think about this American evangelical movement that is tied with the right wing um, that is also 
um, apocalyptic uh, in nature. And I would say, you know, she says pessimistically apocalyptic, but I think Mike Pence is optimistically apocalyptic because, you know, the the goal is to get <laughs> to the end times, you know? And so all of these things that are existential threats are also things that they see as bringing the next stage. And so all of that combined, you know, because a lot of those people are sort of intertwined in different groups. And so I think one of the failures of this is to recognize those little lines where religion does. I mean, obviously the Middle East, I mean, but in America, religion is really underlying some of these uh, movements as well. And there are different goals, you know, so Richard, when you're talking about like, what are the things we can all agree on? I think it's easy to agree on we don't want to step in dog poop. But I don't know that it's easy to agree that we need to make sure, you know, we have clean water, because there is a portion of the society that sees that as that move to where the goal is. Well, and how do we really get at how do how do we really get at being able to address these kinds of big questions like climate change, if in order to not upset the authoritarians, we have to keep things at the level of dog poop? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We, we won't. And, and we're not. All this incrementalism is actually not going to get us where we need right. to be. Right. Um, and that's actually the scariest thing for me is that we know we're not taking enough action and we're not acting fast enough. So, you know, I think in some ways we do have to think about how we're talking about things. And, you know, one of the things about complexity is that you can't do it in one tweet or even a tweet thread. <laughs> it's that you have to have these long conversations. And how do we get to a place where we are looking for these long conversations? But that, I mean, again, this is this is not necessarily a... I mean, to, to get it back to the, the sort of fundamental issues of political authority that get raised amongst whenever we have discussions about authoritarianism versus democracy, it's possible that we would be much better off in terms of climate change if we had the, the problem with political authority is always, well, authoritarianism is fine as long as the right sort is in charge, right? Like as long as it's the right sort of people. So if we had a person who legitimately believed in taking um, important and radical and significant action on climate change, and they had the full force of the federal bureaucracy behind them in an authoritarian way, we might actually be better at addressing climate change than we are in the situation that we are in, which is we are a troubled democracy at best, an oligarchy framed most pessimistically, and an oligarchy that sort of takes tepid action with regard to environmental rights, largely because it so runs against their class interests mm -hmm. to do something like this, is that we might actually be better off underneath a king who actually cares about the environment. And that's, I mean, that's just an issue, right? Like, if you believe in political equality, and the, you know, the full enfranchisement, both in terms of voting and in terms of deliberation and having a voice in government, we have to deal with the fact that it takes us a long time to do things sometimes, 
right? And that its change is very likely to be incremental. And that there's a real downside to that. There's a, there's a price to be paid for it. And for, you know, the fact that some people kind of look at that and go, yeah, not worth it. I want to make sure that my, that, that my sort is in charge, right? And we'll, and, and they'll, we'll all be better off in, with that. I, I think that we have to understand that and, and, and live with it at the same time we sort of say, look, that's not how we're going to run things, right? It's not sustainable over the long term. If I may be very specific, when you do poll on gas taxes, people hate them across the political spectrum. Now, what's something we could do for greenhouse gas very quickly? We could make gasoline $10 a gallon. And I, I know about the equity issues. And my solution to that is to just give everybody a big fat tax rebate so that low-income people are compensated for the gas being more expensive. And, and we have the ability to do that. So I don't, I don't buy the equity argument. You can fix the equity argument very easily. So if gas was only $10 a gallon or $15 a gallon or something, man, you would see a really big impact on greenhouse gases very quickly. People would figure it out. Pretty much guarantee you. It's one of those things, Democrats hate it, Republicans hate it, white people hate it, black people hate it, men, women hate it, everybody hates it. Uh, I want the to say, I like the gas tax. And he's aiming to. Yeah, but we're elites, right? No, is, is how do you deal, so that's a nuance, how do you explain to people? So you talk about takeaways, and Jen, your point about the need for not increment. So 10 cents a gallon ain't going to do it, right? You got to say, we're, man, we're going to be like Europe. We're going to make gas expensive. How do you do it? Well, there are a couple of approaches, I think. So one, the stick approach, right? Make bad stuff really expensive. Great. That's one piece of a larger puzzle, I think. Like we can actually pay for a low carbon green economy with a just transition with job training and guaranteeing jobs and all that if we actually had the political will to do so and people could see the benefits from that. Um, they're not immediate, takes a little while. Um, I think you, I think we can, there's carrots and sticks here that we can be employing. Um, but you're right. I mean, the, the incrementalism isn't going to get us where we need to go. We actually need really bold action. My thing about, so, you know, my dream is my he version of heaven is Los Angeles with uh, Shanghai's uh, subway system. That would be my dream. Okay. Even if we all agree to do it tomorrow. <laughs> oh, Lisa, <laughs> 15 years later. Years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean, the physical process of building out the infrastructure takes a long time. And this is urgent, as you rightfully said. So what I'm telling you is the only way I can think of that urgently changes behavior is I'm afraid the stick approach. The carrot is just, do the carrot too. Hell, use that money. Use your $20 a gallon gas tax. It keeps, notice it keeps going up every time I mention it. So among other things, build out a world- Richard has delusions of grandeur about this gas tax. <laughs> right, right. No, no it, it's partially how you fund this. Um, I mean, you would have to rebate a lot of the money to low-income people. I think that would be the first thing I would do with it. But if there's money left over, fund transit. But it takes a long time to build out. Mm -hmm. So what I'm thinking from, again, a practical standpoint about how you deal with this issue, I can't get around the fact that you just have to make carbon using activities very expensive to do, carbon emitting activities. And that actually isn't, I mean, to be totally frank, and we're getting a little far afield now, and so I'm we're sorry. probably going to have to come that's back to the book, but like, that's not just transit. That's pe people's food. That's what we eat. It's it's, I mean, there is a fascinating new study out that bottom, that ocean bottom trawling is the greatest releaser 
of releaser of, um, of CO2. It is the largest contributor to climate change. And that's fishing. That's industrial scale fishing. So like we have got to think about these things um, from a systems perspective. It's it's not just people in their cars, well, right? This is across going to the complexity spectrum. again, Jen. I know, and that's actually part of the problem. <laughs> the, these things are all systems that all have feedback loops involved in them, and that's hard for those of us who aren't terrified of complexity. It's hard enough for us to understand, and yet we've got potentially a third of our population that's like, no, not listening to any of that. That's too much chaos, and I don't know where to go with that. But I think that that's a very real challenge for us as a society that is trying to become a more equitable, pluralistic, multiracial society that actually survives, you know, for the next hundred plus years. Also, you know, it comes back to something that that I often it's one of my soapboxes, you know, I think the interdisciplinary work where elites, experts can talk to non-experts in the field. And I think Richard and Lisa you are very good at that. But there are a lot of faculty who can't talk outside to anybody outside of their field because they don't have the right language. They aren't able to code switch in that way. And, uh, you know, I think it's deeply important. Yeah. It's deeply important. And it's deeply important that that research, not all research has to be actionable, but research that is actionable needs to be talked about and shared in a way that is actionable and in a way that regular people can understand. I mean, podcasting in and of itself, I think, is a medium for that, right? That is a nice advertisement. Thank you, Jen. <laughs> by the way, there is an excellent podcast hosted by Olivia Olson on actionable research that came out about a week ago. Very nice. I will have the to check that out. The podcast is called The Bigger Picture. <laughs> we'll put a link in there. Um, yeah, it was... Excellent conversation. So, <laughs> did you like this book? I we did talk more about it. You did, okay. I ended up liking parts of it quite a bit. She's an absolutely marvelous pro stylist. Yeah, the writing uh, was really lovely. Oh, yeah, I get really annoyed at people. I, I, I think she's a marvelous writer. I'm not sure she's a wonderful thinker mm. in this realm because mm. I agree. Um, I've read other things, in particular. Uh, histories that she's written um, that I, I thought were very good. Um, this is, like I said, this is just a book that's really, really hard if you are not extremely well-versed in political theory. And some of the mistakes that she makes are ones that appear from cracks in the foundation where she's not really particularly rigorous about how she sets her definitions and works right yeah and part of that is for the idea of this design of i'm going to go i'm going to reflect on these relationships and talk to these people and see what emerges and you know as it turns out no real coherent themes emerge as i argue probably because there aren't any other than the sort of political opportunism and uh uh, you know, uh, nest nest feathering that she documents here um, of of the people who are in a particular a unique position in order to, to profit from the sort of disorder that they claim to deplore. Um, on the one hand, and I, th that I think is a, a fundamental problem in that she she wants to argue the the sort of point about people who have these kind of latent authoritarian tendencies, and that she's really not talking to those people. I don't think. Mm -mm. You know, she's talking Agreed. to the people who market to them. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. 
you know, and she never sort of just settles down and, and writes that and, and has that insight. It's one that you sort of, I backed into in reading it. But I have to say, there's really not enough writing about comparative politics yeah. in the popular politi- politics books realm. Uh, comparative politics are very hard to do well in terms of research. And it's really nice to have a writer of this skill writing about Poland and Spain, right, and Hungary in tandem with changes in the UK and the United States to help people try to understand that Trumpism wasn't an isolated phenomenon globally. Um, And and as a result, I, I really liked the book for that even though I think ultimately the book doesn't succeed at doing what I, what I think she tried to do, which was, again, it's a fault of ambition, <laughs> right? Which I'm always, you know, it, oh, darn, right? You tried to do something ambitious and big and it didn't work out. It, that doesn't generally bother me dreadfully. So it's, it's definitely a book that's worth reading. Yeah. I think for me, it's, uh, it was just like you said, Lisa, the comparative aspects were nice. Like I'm, I'm not up to speed on the Vox party in Spain and the Smolensk conspiracy. And all of these things were things that I then thought, oh, I'm going to go do some additional reading about this. Or like Karen Stenner was not a researcher that I was familiar with. And I've gone and done some additional reading on her. So for me, like as an introductory book to some of this comparative um, analysis, yes, I think I was there were a number of things I was deeply disappointed by. I was actually disappointed by the chapter on the US maybe the most. Um, and maybe that's just because I know that there's there's so much more to it and it's so much deeper and it didn't start with Trump. And we like we could have traced a lot of these origins back to the lies told about the Iraq war and the lies told, you know, about police actions in Central America and sort of like, where did this stuff start growing? I think her her sort of love for Reagan um, really colored her perception. In fact, there's this one piece where she's, you know, she talks about how Reagan sees the, you know, it's the shining city on the hill speech. And, and I was like, well, yes, but that's rhetoric. Like, let's look at what the actual reality of the situation was. And so I, I was sort of deeply disappointed with, with that portion of the book, especially. But as, a, as an introduction to some of these topics and to some of these writers and thinkers, she references a ton of other brilliant, you know, philosophers and historians. Um, I thought it was valuable for that. I do think it's important that people know her perspective and her political affiliations sort of in order to understand the book. Like if I didn't know her perspective and sort of her history that, which she, obviously she shares, um, I, I probably wouldn't have uh, had such a, such an okay experience with it. Cause I was able to sort of, you know, as I went through it, think, okay, well, this is something I'm questioning. This is something I want to dive into a little more deeply. I think that's a really interesting point. And I, I agree with your disappointment about the the U.S. chapter. On, on 171, she just throws in this paragraph where she says, oh, and Trump supporters, they don't really support Trump. The, the loudest, most bandwagon supporters are, it's just an act and that they have to seem so hook, line, and sinker to cover up their own shame and their own second guessing of themselves. And I thought that that kind of came out of nowhere. And I didn't see that as super substantiated or something that I had witnessed or experienced having 
seen Trump supporters in the Trump era. And so I, I felt like there were some some places that were really underdeveloped where it, we would have really benefited from hearing more, having more substantiation of the points. So I think those what I deemed to be kind of gaps, as well as lacking what I mentioned earlier, a, a kind of clear call to action or a so what, I think that that made it difficult for me to have concrete takeaways that will, you know, be helpful and guiding going forward. I certainly think, and I feel like we touched on most of the things that I really loved and that I highlighted and marked, you know, media and algorithms and looking at these specific cases in different countries. I thought that that was all really valuable, but that it lacked a thread that would have helped me appreciate it more and perhaps get more closely to the point that she was trying to drive home. Yeah, agreed. There's some source citations I would have appreciated as well. There's some, there's some real significant false equivalencies in there where she will say something about the left and I'm like, eh, like, is that really equivalent? Like twit, cancel culture on Twitter, you're you're equating to like authoritarian, the rise of authoritarian regimes. And I'm like, eh. And then there were a few things where I was like, okay, where's your source for that? Because like, I'm, I'm kind of not buying it. So there's definitely some rigor that I would have appreciated in yeah. it as well. I, I like her, the the major source of political violence uh, in the 20th and uh, century was was from the left. Yeah. Um, she clearly was missing out on some things that happened in the South. I, little, little I bit, guess it, you know, I was prepared to really love this book because I have enjoyed her writings in the past. Mm-hmm. And I will say there are many ways in which I am simpatico with her. Uh, I have hated Soviet communism for a very long time. I read the Gulag Archipelago when I was about 15, 16 years old, and it changed my life. I thought to that point as a naive 16-year-old that there was moral equivalence between the Soviet Union and the U.S. I came to the view that the U.S. was had things that were really, really wrong with it, but nevertheless, it was not morally equivalent to the Soviet Union and particularly the Stalinist Soviet Union. And so it, it, it's long made me a weird kind of Democrat in that I have been an anti-communist for a very long time. When I was um, in graduate school, I joined the TA Union and I went to the organizational headquarters in order to help organize something or another, probably give out leaflets. And I saw a picture of Fidel Castro admiring uh, whom we were supposed to admire and I quit that moment because I don't like communism. So the point is I have a lot of sympathy for her point of view on a lot of things. But that said, and Lisa's point about her being a beautiful writer, I couldn't agree more. I think I read this in two sittings because it is the sort of thing where the words just go by very enjoyably. It is uh, it is a difficult book to put down, which is a great compliment to a book. But I I think I'm going to follow up on the comments of all of you. I I would have liked more about where does this mistrust of democracy come from? How is it? So our story is things are worse now, right? It's not just the story about the 30 to 40% of people who are always mistrustful of complexity. Um, And by the way, I agree with everybody's comments about learning about scholars that I otherwise wouldn't have known about and and that being very helpful. But maybe it had something to do with the fact that people have been lied to in the U.S. anyway by their government for a very long time. And we can go back to Vietnam being a series of, and again, not tiny little lies, not 
medium size lies. Yeah, Vietnam is. I don't know. It's a pretty big lies. Pretty big lie. And so there's this, and, and there's scholarship on this. There's this evolution of mistrust that's happened since World War II. So after World War II, people in the U.S. trusted the government because they perceived that it had won World War II and gotten us out of the Great Depression. And so there was this view that, okay, this is working pretty well. Um, there have just been a whole host of lies. Uh, Jen did a great job of recounting some of them, I just wanted to go back a little further in time to how toxic I think Vietnam was, how toxic Watergate was. I, th I think your point about Reagan um, was dead on. I mean, one of the things in, in 1980, he started his presidential campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, extolling states rights in a place where freedom riders had been killed. That was sending a kind of message about who is the who are the legitimate voters in democracy. The rhetoric recently about, oh, I'm all for all legal votes. What the hell is that? A vote is a vote. If a person has shown up and fulfilled the requirements of being a voter, which means you're, I think, over 18 and an American citizen, you're a legal voter, period. But somehow in Philadelphia, these were not legal voters. Atlanta. That, that's rhetoric that goes back not to Trump. It goes back a lot further than that. And so I, I would have liked some historical context to where she's coming from today. If this is indeed the twilight, why is it the twilight now? And why wasn't it the twilight 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago or hundred years ago? I'm also gonna stick to this comment a little bit about how the soloing of ideas and of even truths is not a new phenomenon. Yes, it's been weaponized by social media. I'm not really gonna argue that point very seriously, but I did wanna bring it up as just to be a little bit provocative. But if you read about the 1800 presidential campaign between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, man alive, that was nasty stuff flying around. I mean, you know, Jefferson said Adams was a hermaphrodite and that alone should be the foundation for not voting against this man. I mean, it, that yellow, it was more than partisan, Lisa. I think it was just flat out lying, nasty mean. And, and so I, I do think the idea that somehow what we are seeing on Twitter is anything unusual, the weaponization of it, that is unusual. That is no, I don't know. It seems to me that's been around for a very long time. No, no, no. I want to, I do want to address that simply because I think you are again, conflating a couple of concepts that I think need to be treated separately. And one is simply that authoritarianism can be very civil, right? When we're talking about authoritarianism, we're talking about a very specific set of practices regarding top-down exercise of power through hierarchies. And it can be very civil. What you're describing is a very vituperative partisanship, which absolutely, there's evidence of that all over democratic politics. And some would argue that it's absolutely, uh, you know, it's, it's fundamental, it's definitional. Right. It's going to happen simply when you start arguing at the level of values. Um, and so, yeah, this this question about whether our politics is less civil or less partisan, I, I really don't know how you measure that or whether it's even germane to the discussion of, of authoritarianism. Right now, to the degree that that level of vituperativeness or that in your face um, sort of understanding that social media brings the noise and cacophony that that brings to the degree that that's triggering to people who are threatened by discord, right? I think that might be something that's really quite different. 
with technology? I don't know that for sure. I think that's more of an empirical question, right? But I, I want to push back on another thing that Richard said, which is, you know, it's not like the Democrats were Soviet lovers, right? The Bay of Pigs did not happen, right, during a Republican presidency. And I deeply resent the way in which post-Soviet discussions, the Republicans have kind of claimed this mantle as they were the singular holdouts. Um, you know, to That's the degree fair. that the left did have an infatuation with early implementation um, uh, communism and were far, it took them longer than it should have to see the evils and excesses of Stalinism. Uh, I think that's something that you can, tr you can blame people for. But the notion that somehow Democrats and Democratic leaders in the United States were somehow soft on communism really betrays the origins of the, the, the Vietnam War, which you, 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 you know, you, you rightly say is a, a really crucial moment in modern U.S. politics uh, defining, right? An important place in which people, um, that really affected the culture, society, and politics of the United States. You know, the United States has enemies, right? Um, and people all over the political spectrum have their, their ideas about who the enemies of the system are. Um, and just the fact that, um, you know, are we going to say that, um, you know, the Republicans' anti-communism is epitomized in Joseph McCarthy? And is that the kind of, is that what we should be proud of in holding out against communism? Um, is it, you know, we, we always, everything in politics are matters of degree, right? There are shades of all of these things in all sorts of political movements. And the questions are like, how much do we act on these impulses and how much emphasis we put on these priorities? And so the notion somehow that Reagan single-handedly smashed the Soviet Union is, is a, a myth, a political myth. And getting back to the other thing that you talked about, which is lying. Um, this is another fundamental question in political philosophy that we have been discussing from Plato onward, from biblical sources onward, about what, what role information and truth play in dealing with a populace that wants to, that, that very much prefers to deal with dog poop, right? rather than these sort of foundational threatening issues, right? But if you are operating in that world, you're going to have to spend a good deal of time thinking about how you frame things, right? And at what point does an expedient frame become an outright buns up lie? And I, and I will say that I think that's a distinction that she actually makes pretty well. I, I, I don't think she's saying that partisanship is new or that polarization is new. And, and kind of getting back to Richard's point about news media, she, she mentions, as, as Jen discussed earlier, the way that these algorithms work. And she's talking, I think, about YouTube videos and that you could watch a kind of mainstream anti-immigration YouTube video, but because the way that online media works is to keep you on, you will inherently become radicalized, that they see you interacting with this and then they test the waters with xenophobia, they lead you down this path, exactly. And so it's not so much that we're in these separate silos politically, but that we're being guided further and further to these respective poles. I also want to point out though, that those are not, those are not even landscapes right? There is definitely payola happening here. Like every single day, there is absolutely, trust me, I understand how these algorithms work. And I spend a great deal of time fiddling with them to see how they work. There is absolutely no reason for Podbean to believe that I need to see 
that Ben Shapiro has produced a new podcast every single day. And yet Podbean pushes that notification in front of my computer every single day. And that's because there's somebody getting paid to do that. That's right. right. And that there are real differences in people's ability to access the power of things like Facebook algorithms and YouTube algorithms. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree, Lisa. Like, I think that the way, I mean, Facebook is the classic example of this, right? The way that these companies have profited from the radicalization of the membership is something critical. And I think a bit different from what we're seeing. And it may not be inherently different from the days of completely radical, you know, polarizing journalism. But I think part of it is the speed at which it happens and the the low marginal cost, which you raised before. It's very, very inexpensive to do this kind of stuff. It's very, very fast to do it. And you can just have millions of views, millions of hits in a very, very short period of time. So the scale is also something that we haven't seen before. So I agree with all of that. I also think that uh, blaming it all on the algorithms, like I know that it's it's very easy, but to be sort of shown uh, down a rabbit hole, but you also have to be open to that rabbit hole and accept your responsibility for Oh, not totally. <laughs> in no way am I saying that it's all the algorithms. There's so many people that I'm just like, did you, little bunnies did you not have that, like, uh, know your sources thing in eighth grade? I feel like we had it in third grade where... But again, it's for people who are susceptible to this, right? For people who are maybe already feeling angry or already feeling afraid or who are already having some feelings. <laughs> so much of this is about feelings and psychology, right? And, th- and, and these algorithms prey upon that. Yeah. Again, you know, I think uh, this is, I agree with everyone. I, I liked her writing. Uh, I was sort of tired of hearing about her hubby all the time and not really having a name for him. Uh, hubby, hubby, hubby. There were a lot of hubbies and I just... Mm. My hubby's pretty cool too. I, I like talking about my wife, so... I know, but like, uh, you know, it just felt very like, yeah, she's going, she's got access to all of these people through her husband and it just felt a little... Um, well, but she's also, I mean, she's a Yale graduate. She went to a very, very, you know, exclusive prep school as, yeah. as a child. This is not a, this is not the child of, of, uh, Non, uh, non-networked uh, oh, yeah. political no, outside. You're, you're absolutely right. It, it occurred to me that maybe he got his job because of her. <laughs> there, there's, there's a possibility. I do have to say, I kind of, it was interesting to me that I did end up what, liking this book because there is no faster way to get me to hate a book than to start it with something along the lines of, we were at our summer villa having a party. <laughs> it's like those people who start out, yeah. my family lost their summer home on Cape Cod, and now we're just like, oh, would you go uh-huh. away and get a real problem? There's no faster way to get me to kind of go, I don't want to hear it, right? Because this is a view that actually gets, there's a lot of this voice already in politics. But to the degree that she does try to use that as a a way of understanding or framing what she's actually trying to do here, I did by the end kind of go, okay, we're back at a party at her house. Right. Right. (laughs) New friends, new friends. Um, The only thing, so, uh, you know, it got me thinking about the things that I found really difficult about the book are, um, you know, this sort of um, 
complete antipathy towards the left. Um, you know, only Republicans can be anti-communist. Um, that sort of lack of uh, introspection. Um, but in some ways, I think it gives the book a bit of that sort of black and white lack of complexity that appeals. So part of me wonders, though, who is she writing for? And is some of this naivety uh, about the last 40 years left there in order to uh, write to a more conservative, uh, moderate conservative audience that um, is still flirting with authoritarianism in that we still have a Congress, a Republican Congress that does not want to govern. So, you know, I would say, and so I think this is the next question is who should read this book? You know, I think that this is written to a conservative audience. By National Review standards, it's an excellent book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I kept thinking George Will. <laughs> yes. David Brooks. The yeah. people who like, th that's the audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I do think that people who are interested in um, comparative politics should take a look as long as they understand uh, the perspective that she's coming from. Uh, the stuff about the Polish plane crash was really interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I found the, the unique conspiracy theories in each place to be really fascinating. And, you know, at their core, they all have something related, but they're all unique to the to the people and the situation and the culture that makes them attractive to people there. Did you have a favorite line or passage? Um, I will say that for people who um, like this podcast, they may want to listen to a prior uh, Bedrosian uh, podcast that we did um, on um, uh, Nancy Rosenblum and uh, uh, Russell Darmide's book, A Lot of People Are Saying about conspiracism and it it's a it's a nice book in many respects because it talks about the new the new universe of conspiracy as being really quite different from prior generations of conspiracy theories um i think it fits in very nicely with this and it was a nice discussion that we had um while everyone's looking up their favorite <laughs> their, their favorite um you know what there's something actually that it, it's not my favorite passage but it's one of my favorite things about the book which i can't believe i haven't mentioned up until this point because i had made a note to talk about it is um the distinction that she makes that some researchers have made i guess between um reflective nostalgia and restorative nostalgia and there's something about the restorative nostalgia that i think is truly fascinating because it's actually nostalgia for a past that never existed, but that people believe existed and that in that past, they can have the power and the status and the stability and the way of life that they want to have. That they're if we could only get that past back that they are entitled to, but that they're not really interested in any truth or nuance about that past. So it's a fictionalized past that they want. And I was thinking of how relevant that is here in the United States when we talk about, you know, um, making America great again. And when we talk about like the good old South and the people who are like, if back in the good old days, it's all this restorative nostalgia for a time and a place that actually never was the thing that people believe it is. And that, that lack of willingness to actually interrogate our past honestly and be truthful about it really feeds. Like we are 
we Americans are so good at whitewashing our history that I think that that actually really feeds this restorative nostalgia in a, in a dangerous way. Mm-hmm. Which is why the 1619 project was so threatening. Oh, yeah. And your favorite passage or favorite point brings me to mine. It's on page 46 when she's talking about the House of Terror Museum. And she says... I also liked the fact that the museum showed ordinary Hungarians collaborating with both regimes, which I thought might help their descendants understand that their country, like every country, should take responsibility for its own politics and its own history, avoiding the narrow nationalist trap of blaming problems on outsiders. And so I think that she's really recognizing the ways that we as Americans, we as Hungarians, we as citizens of countries with long and often terrible histories need to take responsibility and ownership for the vestiges of those bad histories. I'm jumping the gun on my question for what I'm reading right now. Uh, it's cast for our later book book club podcast today by Isabel Wilkerson. And I think that she really profoundly talks about how America is an old house and that while we're not responsible, we today, we didn't build the house, we're not responsible for the leaky roof or <laughs> the bad foundation, they're our problems now and ongoing negligence is our fault. And I thought that that reading these books in conversation with each other was was really valuable and that uh, her point on page 46 was a really nice way to look at how we can frame our history and frame ongoing responsibility through monuments, through museums, through education. And I think cast <laughs> will show us that we need to keep reevaluating and that it's not static. Anybody have a favorite line passage? I do. I actually love the way the book ended. It's hard to pick favorite passages because um, she's such a good writer that there's lyricism to be found everywhere. Um, but I loved the way it ended. These last few paragraphs, I think, are really important. And I, kind of one of my hobby horses about trying to help people understand that um, debate and conflict are not a sign that democracy is failing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it may be uncomfortable, but it's not necessarily a bad thing uh, to some. And I don't have a page number because I read on Kindle. Um, but these are the last 189. Yeah, the last two paragraphs. To some, the precariousness of the current moment seems frightening. And yet this uncertainty has always been there. The liberalism of John Stuart Mill, Thomas Jefferson, or Vaclav Havel never promised anything permanent. The checks and balances of Western constitutional democracies never guaranteed stability. Liberal democracies always demanded things from citizens. Participation, argument, effort, struggle. They always required some tolerance for cacophony and chaos, as well as some willingness to push back at the people who create cacophony and chaos. I think that's actually a very wise paragraph. And it's obviously uh, a nice way to end what is uh, like a a very ambitious effort. I really agree, Lisa. I like that. And there's also a sentence um, on page 182 where she says, it's possible to be rooted to a place and yet open to the world. Mm-hmm. And I, I wrote that sentence down because I was like, oh, she's, she's, she's a good writer. <laughs> mm-hmm. I really liked it. Yeah. Favorite passage, Richard? Yeah, well, actually, the, the, the phrase that Jen just gave, yeah. I thought, was beautifully said and was going to be what I said out of a 200-page book. So. Oh, no, Richard, I, I, I still No, 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 it's totally fine. But I, I, I also heartily agree with Lisa 
that the the conclusion is actually quite good mm-hmm. and beautifully written. I do, and and this probably I, I need to separate Jefferson the person from Jefferson. You have to, yeah. The philosopher, yeah. Because now when I see the word Jefferson, I always kind of go ooh. But honestly, Jefferson the philosopher was remarkable, and we should be allowed to hang on to that. Though I'm not that great on hang, I, I'm not that great on hanging on. To Mill, well, I have we all now live in, in liberal cancel culture, so he's just going to be forgotten forever now. <laughs> I know, of course, just can't the Twitter mobs have had their way. And whereas, <laughs> you know, I have nothing. You know, Mill and Hobble, I think, are totally unobjectionable figures. So far, as best I can tell, as far as we know, <laughs> as far as we know. <laughs> so what? Uh, so uh, you know, actually, Lisa has uh, my favorite passage. So um, I did also like the end, and I wish that um, I wish a little bit more that that had been sort of part of the the theme. Um, but um, yeah, what are you reading now? Well, we know what Olivia's reading. Olivia's <laughs> reading, yes. and hopefully, our <laughs> listeners are also reading it. It's a very, it's a very good book. It's a very good book. I highly recommend I finished it off a little bit ago. So I'm looking forward to hearing all of your discussion about cast. I am reading a book by Rita Buchanan called The Weaver's Garden. And I'm learning all about these cool plants that indigenous people used to make fabric from, uh, which is, uh, you know, really interesting scientifically and culturally and, you know, um, sort of like, oh, my God, it's magical stuff. Does that it count if I'm rereading a book? Yes. Okay. I am almost to the end for the second time of uh, Viet Nguyen's The Sympathizer, which I recommend to absolutely, and not just because he's a USC colleague. We it also, is a, there is also a podcast episode on The Sympathizer. Oh, there and is. And an interview with Viet. Oh, um, my goodness. It, it's magnificent. <laughs> and it is, um, I don't think you would mind. I hope you wouldn't mind if I said this. I think you need to read uh, the Nothing Ever Dies, Quiet American by Graham Greene, in mm. tandem with The Sympathizer. I think they're a great combo. I actually think you should read. Uh, so I, I agree with that. The other thing you could do is read The Sympathizer and Nothing Ever Dies, which is the nonfiction book that he wrote. Uh, during the process of writing The Sympathizer. And um, he goes into a little bit more about Apocalypse Now and film and history. Um, And quite honestly, I think Nothing Ever Dies is my favorite of Viet Thanh Nguyen's writing. It's lovely. And it pairs very well with The Sympathizer. Mm. Well, I am reading a book by a philosopher named Frederick Gross called Disobey, The Philosophy of Resistance. And it's really a book about, in a world as absurd as ours (laughs) careening toward uh, collapse, we have a moral imperative to disobey, but we are, um, we have a predisposition toward obeying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a philosophy book. So it's a little, it's a little deep for me, but I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I, have also just read Cast. Um, but the book that I am reading for fun right now uh, is called A Certain Hunger by Chelsea Summers. And it is a book about a female serial killer slash cannibal. Oh, boy. Uh, I'm not quite sure I like it. Our our narrator is a uh, cannibal. I have an alibi. <laughs> you have an Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, Just the word slash for a particular reason there. Did I use the word slash? Yeah, I did. (laughs) Um, The character, though, is also a a food critic. So the writing is very lush and full of... uh, So it's a fun read. You don't like the main character, but (laughs) uh, it is fun so far. Um, And on that note, um, I guess we are out of time. In fact, we're over time. So thank you so much, everyone. (laughs) Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Olivia. I really appreciate you joining us today. And a big thank you to our listeners. We hope that you, our fellow book lovers, are getting something out of our discussions, and we'd love to hear your questions or comments. To find the whole suite of podcasts exploring governance and civics, including the new one, where there is an interview that Olivia did with Richard and team, search USC Bedrosian on your favorite podcast. Including, if I may say so, my wife. Yes, your wife. One of the co-authors. <laughs> yes, your wife uh, is Patty, is on there as well. And uh, our, our friend, uh, Anthony Orlando as well. Uh, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about, including that podcast episode and uh, several of the books that were mentioned on our website, bedrosian.usc.edu slash book club. Uh, and if you're reading along with us uh, next month, which is April, we are reading um, All We Can Save and The Nature of Desert Nature. So we're going to talk about the environment. So, And I think Jen is going to come back with I am for a discussion on all we can save. Great. So thank you to all the guests. Thanks to my co-producer, Jonathan Schwartz. And a huge thanks to our beloved sound supervisors, the Brothers Hedden. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, Signing off, I'm Aubrey Hicks from University of Southern California. Thank you so much.